The following content is brought to you by Andy Beach, Paul Boyer, Will Harris, and The Lonely Now. Gentlemen, welcome uh, to the Politics, Politics, Politics program for June 5th, 2020. I'm Justin Robert Young. Oh, boy. Uh, (laughs) uh, uh, uh. Obviously, weighty episode on Wednesday. Happy we got a chance to do it. Uh, Got some feedback on it. In fact, we are going to dedicate... An entire segment of this show specifically to feedback from police officer listeners. I didn't know that I had many cop listeners, but I have at least a few that that uh, you know made it their business to reach out. And so, uh, you know, in the interest of of getting to a solution, we will have their points of view read here on the show in a moment. We're also going to have one of those classic PX3 Make Me Smart interviews. This one is about something that I've I've touched on. You've heard me talk about it, but we finally got an expert, and he's great, to talk about the 1957 and 1968 pandemics. Uh, This is, I think, excellent. Uh, this is great context. Uh, the interview's fantastic. And more specifically, there's a moment in there which was very illuminating to me. Throughout this entire process, one of the things that I have wondered about, just because I had never heard it before, and the more I read about these other pandemics, it wasn't mentioned in the same way, is social distancing. Where in the playbook in how to deal with the pandemic did social distancing come in? And we've done interviews on this show where uh, initially we asked about it and, and it was like, oh, well, social distancing has been around since the plague. Yes, and we didn't do it in 57. We didn't do it in 68. Why are we doing it now? We get an answer to that. There is a concrete answer to that and it involves George W. Bush. But first, let's talk about Uh, Some of the numbers here that came out today. This is a number-centric Friday. Here's one number. Real Clear Politics average, based on a few new polls that came out today, have Joe Biden up 7.1 percentage points. He is now, in a few polls that came out today, crossing the 50% mark. And things are looking pretty good. Also, some of the, the, the polling that comes out today about Uh, approval ratings on Trump handling COVID. Trump under his average in terms of just presidential approval rating on that. How he handled the George Floyd protests slash riots. He is under his own average approval rating there. But the question is, and dare I uh, look to be counterintuitive, is that Bad news for Biden. I know, I know, I know. I know, I know. know. For all the Biden heads that are listening, all the people that hate Trump that are listening, uh, why can't I just give Joe Biden a moment in the sun? Why can't I just let him enjoy this? He's he's leading. The president seems to be self-destructing. But I gotta wonder. I gotta wonder, is it good? Is it good? Is it good that Joe Biden is only up 7% after a pandemic, after six-digit number of Americans dead from a virus, after a, a week in which riots and looting were so bad that the sub-scandal about whether or not we were going to bring in 
the National Guard or bring in active duty military not only resulted in Trump's own former Secretary of Defense publicly slamming him, but the New York Times opinion section ripping itself to shreds based on an op-ed they ran by Senator Tom Cotton. This, put simply, might, I'd say it will, might, I think that there is a reasonable claim to say might, be the worst that Donald Trump looks between now and November. Now, I would not put it past 2020, nor would I put it past this administration to have bigger stumbling blocks than a global medical crisis and a racial conflagration that burns so hot it has people in New Orleans chanting F Drew Brees because he dares to step on the other side of it rhetorically for 12 hours before he has to apologize. But let's, for the sake of argument, say that these are the deepest valleys that we see in the year 2020. As I think you could probably say in any normal year, one of these would be the deepest valley that we would see nationally. It would be the thing we would remember. We happen to get them both in the same month. Then it would stand to reason that between now and an election day, things will get more to normal. And if things are getting more to normal, then the damage done now would have to be remembered very vividly between now and November. And considering the fact that most people don't remember we had an impeachment Within this calendar year, I don't know if that's a safe bet. Let's also factor in that right now our economy is, I don't want to say artificially, because artificially means that it's fake, right? But it was put on pause for a specific reason. I think we compared it on this podcast to we're now ripping up the carpet And we're going to see whether or not all these floorboards are structurally sound. But if these floorboards are structurally sound and we just put the carpet back down again, there's no reason to say that the economy by November will look more like it is in May than it did in January. Now, it might not get back to exactly January, but if it's coming close to it, or if it's moving in that direction, then it would stand to reason that, number one, Donald Trump would take credit for it, and number two, that people would feel a little bit more at ease closer to when people go vote. To wit, the employment numbers came out today for May, and they were a surprise. We added 2.5 million jobs When, at least according to Donald Trump, the numbers that Donald Trump is going to put out there, there were projections that we were going to lose 7.5 million jobs in May. Let me put it this way. For the voters that are going to decide this election, Michigan, Ohio, Florida, I don't know if those persuadable voters by the time November rolls around, won't look at March, April, May as, wow, did we get hit by two out-of-control situations that were originated beyond the president's scope. But hell, we came a long way, baby, and here we are in a better position. If that's the case, then what I think Joe Biden's going to look back on is say, man, did we miss an opportunity? 
We missed an opportunity to really be leaders during this crisis point. Because, yes, Biden is here to say, I'm better than Trump, and to point out all the elements that Trump is deficient in. But I think he's done an okay job with it. You know, at least if somebody were arguing with me that he was, I would shoot them in the leg and not the heart. He hasn't particularly led on COVID. I said this before, I'll say it again. I think Guy Fieri, the mayor of Flavortown, has done more to channel his specific power and wealth into actual benefit for people, benefiting service workers who are out of work. I think Biden could have really taken advantage of saying every day, this is how much we're raising for COVID. This is where we're putting our money. We are pivoting this campaign into a relief effort during this situation. I think he could have, without saying a word, without saying a word or putting his logo on anything, he could have come out of here looking like the real president. I genuinely believe that. Considering how bad Donald Trump was at projecting calm and effectiveness, how uh, uh, vicious the fighting was between some of these may or governors, and we're going to continue to see that. If Biden just would have said, "Look, politics will be there. Uh, 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 the president is going to do what the president does. I'm here to make sure people are safe." God, I think he would have gotten so much credit. I, I think we, the real president, I feel like that would have been, it would have been Donald Trump versus the real president in November. And then there's the fact that he's boxed in on the police stuff, unless he really wants to go hard on this. And I don't think Joe Biden's that guy. I don't think the guy who authored the crime bill is going to now author the anti-crime bill. Well, let's say he does. Uh, that would require a lot more effort. That would require him refiguring his map a little bit to see whether or not those middle class, working class white voters in Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Florida are into that stuff, police reform. Uh, They don't necessarily seem like that demo to me, but maybe Biden believes that he can win more in other areas. I just don't know if he's going to not come out of this later in the summer and look at these three months as the moment he could have won the election. But again, he's seven points up and you'd rather be seven points up than seven points down. I'm I'm sorry I had to be a contrarian at this. I'm sure that there's a bunch of people that are just really excited that Trump looks down on the mat and and I'm here giving the opposite. That's, yeah, you want to know what? Send me nasty DMs. Just go. My DMs are open on Twitter. Just at Justin R. Young. Just just send me a curse word if you're annoyed. In fact, take a picture of yourself being annoyed if you want Donald Trump out of office and I just took good news for the Biden campaign and turned it into a is it good news segment. Just take a picture of your angry face and DM it to me at Justin R. Young. On Thursday morning, a friend of mine texted me. The text read this. Are you going to have a police officer on your podcast to discuss their perspective? This was, of course, after the police brutality episode that I ran on Wednesday. And, you know, between everything else that goes into making an episode like that, uh, you know, the research and trying to think of what you want to say and clarify your own thoughts. I didn't send that episode to anybody. I I probably should have probably should have sent it to friends that that I really trusted that I knew could carve out a half hour of their day and just ask them what they thought. But I didn't because I'm stupid. But if I didn't even send it out to anybody to make sure that I wasn't saying something awful that would kill my entire career and ruin race relations in America, I certainly wasn't thinking about having 
a, a, a cop on. And I do think it would have been valuable. Uh, beyond what you think of police at this very current moment, at the end of the day, their understanding of problems is something that I think is helpful when crafting solutions. Even if you disagree with where the problems are, just that knowledge, that 360, I think is important. And so it was right after getting that text message that I got a bunch of emails, a bunch of emails from cops. I didn't realize that so many cops listened, but a bunch emailed in and I would like to read three of them. Uh, they, well, a few of them asked to remain anonymous, so I'm just going to read them anonymously. But here's the first. I'm writing you today for a couple reasons. First, as a fan, a patron, and a supporter. Secondly, however, I'm writing you as a police officer, specifically an Orlando police officer. This is the point in me reading this that I, like, gulped. Because I read about a lot of bad things that happened in the Orlando Police Department for that Val Demings vetting segment. And I know that that stuff was written other places, but it's not like I pulled those case files myself to confirm them. So I don't know whether or not he's just going to wholesale you know, condemn all the facts that I brought up. But also, I got to be in Orlando a lot. My family lives there. So I didn't want to piss off the Orlando PD. Anyway, all right, back to the email. Generally, I don't give out those details when I write into various podcasts about things, but because I don't want my opinion to in any way be misconstrued with an official statement for the department. From what I know of you through the years, I know that you'd respect it, though. I won't belabor you on the top of type of week I had, but needless to say, it's been long. I listened to the latest PX3, though, out of respect uh, for all that you've said before on so many topics. I think, as is often the case, some nuance is lost in describing the situation. It's my understanding that qualified immunity only applies to federal statutes. Officers or their departments can still be sued civilly for actions by anybody that wants to bring a suit. I think you conflated these two ideas in implying that it's, and I'm paraphrasing, impossible to sue cops, yet OPD paid out several millions of dollars under Chief Val Demings. I think this speaks uh, to the uh, much of the public's lack of understanding on how federal, state, and local law work as well as failing to understand that there is both criminal and civil law. Not to mention that they can all mix and mingle with each other. Also, as an aside about the guns in the cars, the officer who was involved in the Club Paris incident was reassigned to the airport after that happened, or might have been there originally, and our airport officers don't get take-home cars. So I assume that the guns were in his personal vehicle. Chief Demings also drove an unmarked truck in her time as chief, as quote-unquote managers do, so again, not a marked patrol car. Neither is excusable, really, but also not exactly breaking into marked police cars in the middle of the night. So, I did some more research and read some more about qualified immunity based on this email. Qualified immunity does indeed uh, cover local law enforcement. It's not just federal law enforcement. But it is something that does vary state to state. Specifically, if you are piercing qualified immunity, therefore making the officer that you believe violated your rights liable for the thing that they did, then you have to prove that via state law, they went afoul of clearly established law. Like, so state law does interact with, with whatever your federal constitutional rights are. Furthermore, even if you can't sue the officer, you can still sue the department. And so that's where a lot of the department payouts came from. I was not totally clear on this. It was cleared up more for me. It's not that I believe that qualified immunity is a, an immediate cure to what we have. To be totally honest, I, I very much believe that hand-in-hand hand with better reporting, clearer reporting, that it is just a step forward for accountability. But I do want to be 
as honest as I possibly can be in terms of my understanding of qualified immunity. And I will be honest in saying that I'm still learning about it. The biggest fear I had with that episode on Wednesday was me putting my foot in my mouth because I was a tourist to this specific subject. So please bear with me as we all get more acquainted with this. All right, second email. I am a police officer. Thank you for your podcast yesterday. I work for a good police department in a major city and have never worked for another department. Do we still have to work uh, work to do in certain areas? Yep. But we are light years ahead of other departments. I think we here have handled the demonstration and the riots well. I'm appalled by what I am seeing at some other departments and how they are handling things. In my opinion, we need national standards, national decertification lists for certain offenses, and body cameras on all officers. Keep doing what you do. Where I work, if you don't follow the rules, you are going to be held accountable. Now, are you going to be fired for a simple infraction? No. But you are likely to get on some type of suspension or sanction, including remedial training. We do fire people several times a year for things they've done. We are very transparent. Anyone can look at an officer's record, and there are no purging of records. If citizens want to know about training, the department will tell them about it unless it is something sensitive. If you want body camera footage, you need a specific time and incident, and the case has to be closed unless the DA gives permission to release the information. But this is a state law, so while it is policy, it is dictated by someone else. I live in a right-to-work state, so we do have a union, but there really isn't much power there. When we meet with leaders, we usually talk about morale or ways to improve working conditions where it wouldn't cost the city any money. The same can't be said for union states. They pretty much define the working conditions. I am pretty high rank where I work, but I would never want to be on a high-level supervision role in a union state. I'm not sure how anything gets done there. All right. This was good. A police officer said I did a good job. I like that. That was a good one. And then we get to our final one. And uh, I got to say this one was uh, uh, not contentious, but certainly he was the only one that led with... uh, you know, some challenges. So here we go. I'm a road cop, meaning I'm in the car and responding to calls. I'm against any change in qualified immunity. Every day when I do my job, I'm on the knife's edge and have to make split-second decisions that can be then reviewed in slow motion by people who don't know what my job entails. If qualified immunity gives me one more line of defense against my life getting ruined by one of those decisions, then I would not like to see it go. It also doesn't work the way you seem to think. It's only a shield, so I'm not personally liable for damages in a lawsuit. You can still sue the department. Unless qualified immunity is pierced, which is different state by state, then the only thing it does is keep liability off me personally. My department gets internal affairs cases very routinely. In fact, it can be as for little as speeding in a marked vehicle. And by the way, if you lie during an internal affairs investigation, you're done. The Florida cop uh, that you told the story about in your podcast, that guy would have been fired from the moment it was discovered that he assaulted that woman. And then him lying to internal affairs would have been the icing on the cake. He would have been paraded for the press to show how we treat cops like that. Also, bring back the pole dance. <laughs> I appreciate the lighthearted ending. Uh, but this was, this was uh, uh, and I'm glad. I'm glad that we got something that just flat out pushed back on what I said. Because I don't want this to be a hive mind scenario. Obviously, that was where I came to my conclusion. And in what I have learned more about qualified immunity, the one thing that, again, I will say one more time, this is not a cure-all. This doesn't end, you know, uh, uh, anything. And maybe 
in in some of the gravitas that I spoke with on Wednesday, I might have given an overinflated importance to qualified immunity. But I still do think that the world can exist without it. And even if you don't believe it is being abused now, I think it can. So, I'm glad we had a, a dissenting position on that. And I, I do want to say that, again, I have maximum respect for cops. There are, there are a lot of borderline issues that cops need to make decisions on. I also happen to believe that the greater our accountability is, the better not only do we have a chance to make an authentic connection with each other between citizen and police officer, but dare I say it, the more that we will be able to have possibly empathy. Empathy on a level that I don't think exists in a world where a majority of people think that the rioters were all right to burn down a precinct which is a poll that happened this week. What I got from all of these emails, specifically the ones that were critical of, of how I talked about things, is that police feel put upon. And they feel defensive. They feel that if there is going to be an eroding of anything that they do or another line that they can't cross, that, that they are just playing an unwinnable game of operation and eventually they will all get screwed. What I think that is representative of is the lack of a connection between our citizens and our protectors. Police. In scenarios where we don't have access to the records then the accountability is left to what's happening on Twitter. It's left to what happens in the news media. And, you know, I, I, I could understand if some of the people that wrote in, I, I, I applaud them for writing in and wanting to be a part of this conversation because I get the sense that a lot of them aren't exactly super trusting of the media. But let me put it this way. If you hate the media, police officer listeners, if you despise the media, and you think that uh, this is all a narrative being created to railroad you, and you do things differently, this isn't what it really is, then we need to have the records out there. The public needs to have faith in your Internal Affairs Bureau. They need to be able to look at a small infraction and see a small punishment and say, that makes sense. Because when it's a big problem, then they're going to expect a big punishment. And if it doesn't come through, then we're back in this situation one more time. Accountability. I think it helps bring a connection. Accountability by its very existence, brings apart a better knowledge for people. And that's something that I think helps everyone. There's one thing listeners to PX3 know, it is that this show has range. We go all over the place. We got uh, serious stuff and silly stuff. We try to do everything that we can. We, we, we try to bring as, as much uh, knowledge and perspective uh, as, as I can stuff into one program. But it happens because of you. It happens because of all the listeners to this show. Everybody sharing this show with their friends and family, I appreciate it. You have no idea how much, especially this week, you guys have really gone above and beyond to get this program out in front of people. 
Uh, just know that I see every time that you tag me or share the show on Twitter or on Facebook. It, it just warms my heart. And it also warms my heart when people support us on Patreon. TakePoliticsSeriously.com is where you need to go if you want to do that. We are at 920. 920 patrons on our march to 1,000. March to 1,000 patrons. What an insane milestone that will be. You can be a part of it. That last 80 at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. If you only got a little bit of scratch, one buck an episode. Just show that you uh, recognize that good content is hard to do and uh, uh, that, that that you want to continue to support not only me making the show, but also traveling. Just so you know, country's kind of warming up again. And I mean that in the... The weather sense and not <laughs> the COVID hotspotty sense, hopefully. But, you know, we have the RNC. Uh, if the DNC actually happens, I'm going to be back out on the road probably sometime within the next few months. And you guys are helping make that happen by going to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Even at a buck. Boy, you have no idea how much that helps. Three dollars. You get your bonus podcast on Monday and Thursday. And then, of course, we got the $10 tier. We got the donor class. Go ahead on over there right now and check it out. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Our guest today is George Diener. He's an associate professor of history at Wichita State University. Please check out his books, Influenza, A Century of Science and Public Health Response, and Global Flu and You, A History of Influenza. I'm going to do my favorite thing in the world right now, ask dumb questions to a smart person. George, welcome to the show. Thank you, Justin. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, well, I'm, I'm so excited because even in our, our little pre-interview that we did, just getting all the sound stuff right, you mentioned that nobody wants to talk about the 1968 flu pandemic, which I would say through uh, uh, 36 and uh, uh, a fraction years of my life would certainly fall into how much I wanted to talk about it. And yet now <laughs> it's all I want to talk about, specifically that and the pandemic of the 50s. We've covered them on the podcast, but now we have... An expert. So let's start here. I I had in my citizens research here understood that the pandemics of the late fifties and the late sixties were somewhat related. Is that correct or not? That is correct. There, fifty uh, seven was uh, what was called the Asian flu. Um, I don't know how much background you got into with uh, the mechanics of the virus, but. Uh, the 1957 was labeled an H2N2, and the 1968 is an H3N2. So they have the same one of the same surface uh, protein components, the N, uh, but the 1968 has a new uh, hemagglutinin, the uh, H component, which is uh, which came from a bird source. Uh, which is wedded into the into the viral strain. So they're very much related, but uh, that hemagglutinin difference was enough to generate pandemic spread. If if they are related, does that not inoculate the, the those that had it initial had the 1958 version uh, against the 1968 version? Well, you know, it's interesting because when uh, in 1968, uh, amongst the scientists, they hadn't developed yet. It was actually after 1968, they developed this uh, nomenclature of uh, H and Ns for labeling influenza. They used to be called, there's three types of influenza, A, B, and C. Uh, a is the one that generally car causes the largest uh, pandemics and epidemics. Um, so the a1 strain, the first A strain was Spanish flu in 1918. And then 1957 was uh, a different strain. Uh, so it was called A2. There and we then go. And in 1960, okay. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. That, that just makes a lot of sense. We played, I found an old uh, uh, news broadcast that was uh, especially done for that 1970, uh, or 57 rather, pandemic. Uh, 
and they, they talked a lot about an A2 virus and I, I had not been right. familiar with it, but now I, I guess if, if you, that was the, the old way that we used to talk about the, the H, the, the H's and N's used to be A's and B's. Correct. Well, uh, not A's and B's. B's are a whole different strain. Oh, gotcha. They also okay. have their own H's and N's, but, um, when, um, the the uh, the naming comes from the different responses to tests and so on some tests for the 1968 hong kong flu it showed to be markedly different from 1957 so they said this should be an a3 but on other tests it was very similar to the 1957 so there was a lot of confusion amongst the scientists until they really kind of teased out this idea of there being two surface components that go into the name, the hemagglutinin and norminidase, because the N2 uh, in the Hong Kong flu in 1968 is fundamentally the same N2 from the Asian flu 1957. If your test is measuring that, it's not going to show as different. But if your tests are measuring for the hemagglutinin, then they are going to show as being very different. And so it would be a new strain. So there was a, a little bit of an argument about how to label it until they figured out the H and N components. All right. Uh, well, here, let's actually take a little bit of a trip back because this is something that I've, I've been dying to ask somebody who actually knows what they're talking about. Uh, we've heard a lot of comparisons of what we are going through now with the 1918 pandemic. That was obviously tremendously deadly, came in several waves, uh, uh, over uh, 600,000 Americans dead because of it. We have not heard a lot of comparisons to either the 57 pandemic or the 68 pandemic. Is that just total uh, uh, a pin the tail on the docky media narrative or is they is there a medical reason why we've seen more comparisons to one than the other? Well, the the Spanish flu is is such an outlier for influenza pandemics. I mean, it is off the charts in a lot of different ways, both in uh, the victims it targets, the the scale, the speed. These are all things that are literally off the charts on uh, measuring influenza pandemics. Fifty seven and sixty eight. They're they're pandemic years. They're they threaten. They're deadly. Uh, they're novel. Uh, they're all sorts of problems. But you know they're not. Spanish flu. Spanish flu yeah. is uh, uh, the mortality rate for Spanish flu is somewhere uh, globally around two and a half percent, which is really high. Um, the, the Asian flu and, and the Hong Kong flu are less than one. So th they're, they're not in the same league. Uh, the discussions today about COVID, it makes somewhat of an analogy in 1918 because um, we still, you know, there's still a lot unknown about the COVID uh, virus, but uh, it seems to be about a 1% mortality rate. So um, it's pretty high and it's, and it's very transmissible. Uh, so also like Spanish flu, Spanish flu is very infectious. Um, so there is some natural affinity between these two examples that um, it, it, just the scale doesn't register the same for uh, Asian flu and Hong Kong flu. Okay. Well, then let me ask you this, and this might be stupid and you might not be able to answer it because it is a hypothetical, but I haven't been able to separate in my own head how much the development of our own medical science and awareness via mass media affected 1918 versus let's for our, our intents and purposes kind of group the the fifth you know the two decades of the fifties and the sixties together because they were about at the same technological level in both sides, like if you dropped the nineteen eighteen pandemic into nineteen fifty seven, would it be more dangerous than the Asian flu or the Hong Kong flu? Uh, that's an interesting question because uh, one of the arguments about uh, Spanish flu is that now we have antibiotics and we had antibiotics in fifty seven and sixty eight, uh, so. Many of the deaths that come from Spanish flu are a result of uh, secondary bacterial infections uh, that cause pneumonias. Uh, not all of them. Uh, a, an unknown percentage were caused by direct viral pneumonia, uh, which, you know, antibiotics aren't going to touch. But um, certainly the technology of antibiotics exists. But the, the problem with 
uh, or your hypothetical about dropping the Spanish flu in, is the sheer volume of cases would overwhelm any medical system in 1957 and 1968 and today in the same fashion or similar fashion that it did in 1918. It was just a tsunami of uh, cases that were untreatable um, by and large in 1918 technology. We would have had antibiotics uh, available in 57, 68 that potentially uh, would have uh, uh, allowed some people to survive, but the sheer number of cases would have been uh, even more overwhelming because of the size of the population in 57 and 68. So I guess that's where we, we kind of see those parallels of, uh, it's not that this is necessarily even, it's a very deadly disease, but the the real problem that you want to mitigate is the crush on the health system. And that's the, the fear we saw from Italy is that you don't want people necessarily dying in the hallways uh, because there's such a spread of this disease. Right. And also in uh, Spanish flu and to lesser extent uh, in 57, 68 and COVID today, there's no immunity. So you're talking about 100 percent of the population can contract this. Right. So, um, you know, even if you have and if it's fairly transmissible, which uh, Spanish flu and uh, COVID are both uh, effective transmitters, even if the, the mortality rate is low, like one or two percent, the sheer number of cases leads to a lot of people. Uh, and because you're talking about every single person on the planet, just about uh, can contract this virus, then that avenue for spread um, is why it immediately overwhelms um, uh, medical systems. No medical system is built to withstand anything like a Spanish flu. And in the, the last recent decades, we really turned our medical system into just in time. So there's not a lot of slack to absorb a sudden influx of cases. By design, uh, pandemics, or not by design, but by their nature, uh, pandemics do that. Right. And so, yeah, uh, if you drop a Spanish flu in anywhere, it's going to overwhelm uh, the system up into the present day. OK, so, yeah, it, it was just the, the, the infectious rate of it, the speed of it was, you know, that that's always going to be a problem, no matter yeah. how, you know, if, if we have radio, Twitter or neural implants that immediately tell everybody that it's coming, it's, it's going right. to be a problem just because it's so infectious. Yes, that is correct. OK. Uh, so COVID is not an influenza, uh, no. and yet we, we, we do know that it is following at least patterns that we can learn from, from these other influenza pandemics, uh, just for, uh, uh, you know, to, to kind of illustrate on a base level, what makes COVID different than an influenza or, uh, what, why met, you know, why is it different? I guess I could just start there. Well, it's a, it's a whole different species of vi virus, right? Okay. So it, it comes from a whole different family, the coronavirus family of viruses. Um, it's uh, most likely uh, the, the closest match is a, a bat. So, you know, in some ways it's analogous. Influenza is an animal disease, uh, water, aquatic waterfowl, and it jumps into the human population through various mechanisms. So, uh, there are zoonoses, there are animal diseases that, that jump into the human population. So there's some similarity in there, but uh, there's some similarity into, uh, you know, the target of, uh, of infectious spread, which is through the cells that line the respiratory route. Uh, but there's a lot of differences between um, those family of viruses. And in fact, uh, there's differences between uh, this COVID-19, uh, it's closest to SARS, which appeared in 2003 and then, and, and didn't, uh, and burned out after a, per, a period of time. Uh, and it's reasonably far removed from MERS, but they're all from the same, uh, you know, virus family. And there's some similarities, but even within that family, there's, there's market differences. This is going to be a weird question. Uh, does... Do coronavirus cases like SARS and MERS and now this COVID-19, have they had the same kind of second wave patterns as influenzas? Or is there any historical difference between these two different viruses? Yeah, so um, there is quite a bit of difference between uh, uh, 
COVID-19, uh, SARS, and MERS. And also, there, there are a couple of uh, strains of coronaviruses that cause what we call the common cold. So they're very mild uh, uh, illnesses that are created from uh, MERS is of this family of coronaviruses that have infected humans is the one that has the highest mortality rate, but it's not a particularly good spreader. Uh, SARS um, was that there were certain uh, individuals who, who they referred to as super spreaders who were very efficient at transmitting to other people. But SARS itself, one of the things about it is that you really started manifesting symptoms before you became infectious. And so, ah, if okay. somebody, so if somebody gets sick with SARS, they're, they're pretty sick, and people know it, which is why a lot of the early connections are between sick people and the people treating them in hospitals. Okay. COVID-19 has uh, a substantial portion that's still being worked out um, of people who are asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic. They can transmit this illness before... Uh, they manifest the symptoms. So in terms of infectiousness, that makes it a much more efficient transmitter. If you just think about it from the viewpoint of the virus, what's the most efficient way I can find new hosts? And it turns out to be if the host I'm infecting can go around and infect other people without them knowing it. All right. Uh, let's talk a little bit about public policy on this, because when I was looking through the 1957 uh, data and, and looking up what people were talking about and, and the broadcasts that were made about it, there was a lot of discussion about where it came from, a lot of discussion about how dangerous it either was or wasn't, a lot of precautions advised, but there wasn't a lot of mitigation like social distancing or shutting things down. Uh, is that, did that happen? And maybe I just have passed it over in 1957 or 1968. Uh, in 1957 and 1968, what, what we call social distancing and what is also re referred to as non-pharmaceutical interventions, um, that was not really part of the discussion in 57 and 68. Uh, in 57 and in 68, there were efforts at creating vaccine uh, campaigns to rapidly create a vaccine, a protective vaccine, and there were substantial efforts made, but they weren't necessarily organized by the United States federal government or uh, they were encouraged by the World Health Organization, but no, there was no central directing facility or organization that was doing it. The idea of social distancing and non-pharmaceutical interventions comes about because uh, researchers, scientists, uh, historians, public health folks uh, were re-examining events um, uh, in relation to the concerns about uh, bird flu in 2005. And one of the things they looked back to was not 5768 in terms of this, but back to Spanish flu, and they saw that a lot of places did a lot of things that we would call social distancing, shutting down schools, banning uh, public gatherings, things like that. And so as a conscious effort to develop what they called non-pharmaceutical interventions, they looked at Spanish flu and said, did any of this stuff work? And it turns out that there seemed to be an impact. So after 2005, both because uh, vaccine efforts uh, have a hard time distributing or manufacturing and distributing a vaccine before the pandemic peak arrives in whatever community. Um, and also because, you know, just the example of what did and did not work in Spanish flu, this became part of the discussion for public health. So it really comes about after bird flu in 2000, concerns about bird flu in 2005. So about 2007, it becomes adopted as this is one of the things we can do while we're trying to create a vaccine. That makes so much sense. And and thank you for being on because it, it it's one of those things that the more I look around for just like, all right, well, where, where does this idea come from? Because it doesn't seem to be there during these other pandemics. The, the most, we've even had people on here that are like, oh, well, you know, social distancing has been around since the plague, which I understand that it has, but at least in terms right. of a, a medical strategy, you're saying that right. this becomes in vogue and something that's in the public policy toolbox past bird flu in 05. Yes. And so, and one of the things I don't, you know, I, I don't know how 
the discussion uh, went before how it was framed. But one of the things to think about is that we can't really view Hong Kong flu or Asian flu or Spanish flu or uh, swine flu in 1976 or 2009. You can't really view them in isolation because the people who are creating the policies are consciously either directly exposed, having worked on it before, or are trying to figure out what didn't work before and how do we improve our efforts. So in 68, there was a concerted effort to speed up manufacturing a vaccine, and, and they were quite successful in doing that. The problem was it was still too late. Yeah. So revisiting these previous examples, and, and they held the scientists held meetings, and they had publications, and they were constantly talking and game planning after 57 and after 68. How can we respond more effectively? All right. Uh, one of the bodies that you mentioned during the uh, 58, uh, 50, 57, 68 uh, pandemics was the World Health Organization. Uh, what was their role then and what is their role now? Ah, OK, so um, the World Health Organization, again, it, it ha you have to see it as part of a continuum. OK, so it's created after World War Two. And since we're talking about flu, we can talk about a specific portion of that uh, that's known as the World Influenza Center, which is founded in 1947 by Christopher Andrews. Uh, and it's a direct experience in the background thinking about Spanish flu, because even if it's not part of the immediate discussion of influenza, everyone know all the people in the business know about Spanish flu. So one of the things that sort of crystallized after World War II for Christopher Andrews was this idea that a new virus appears and then circulates around the planet. And since we were talking about B viruses before, the thing that really cemented it him, for him was that there was emergence of a new B virus in the South Pacific, and then it spread around the globe over the course of the year. And so this really kind of uh, sealed the deal for his thinking that we need to have a surveillance system that's looking for new viruses. Uh, and so, that uh, the natural place for that was the, the newly or at the time being developed new idea of the World Health Organization. And so they that became part of the role. And so Christopher Andrews's la, uh, laboratory in London became one of these typing centers where samples around the globe are sent for typing, you know, identifying what kind of virus it is. And then, in, um, and then it became then the United States became incorporated as a second center. These two centers are start, they're in, you know they look at surveillance, right? They're trying to identify this. But then, you know, either initially implicitly and then explicitly, it becomes let's identify what are going to be new viral strains so that we can create protective vaccines. And so, by 1952. The World Health Organization under, you know, underneath the World Health Organization, the World Influenza Center, they're creating recommended viral strains for vaccine production each twice a year, once gotcha. a year for the northern hemisphere and once a year for the southern hemisphere. And that continues unto the present day. OK, and so they that that is why they are in, the, in in the position to take a leadership role during these influenza pandemics during the 50s and 60s. Uh, well, this is the tricky part, right? So okay. the, the, one of the challenges for the WHO is they have aspects of the WHO which are uh, technical groups, technical expertise, right? So this is a technically specific job of identifying a, a, a new influenza strain. So getting samples from around the globe, there's a limited number of people who have that technical uh, capacity. So they build the system to do that. So you have a small group of experts who are experts on the global distribution of flu. But the problem is the WHO doesn't have any money or authority to run global programs. It's not part of the way the system is developed. Uh, so what they do is they make recommendations. And so they recommend to the nation states who are part of the WHO, here's what we think you should do in, with the appearance of this new flu strain. So they are the natural place for, for this global arena, but they don't have global powers to do it. All the powers of public health are done by the nation state or here in the United States. 
uh, beyond the nascent state at the at the state, uh, city, and county level. And all right, here's another remedial, stupid question: WHO is 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 it spun out of the United Nations or League of Nations or some other international cooperative body, or or is this totally uh, its own organization from the very beginning? Well, the United Nations is modeled on. Uh, the League of Nations, right? Yeah. So that's sort yeah. of the, the basis for it. And within the League of Nations, there was a League of Nations health organization, the LNHO. So recreating that was just a natural function of what the United Nations should be. It should have a health system. But um, the focus of what the WHO and there's, you know, even unto the present day, there's still this tension between um, those who favor a real technical approach to diseases. So if you think um, trying to eradicate uh, particular diseases, polio, smallpox in the past, uh, malaria, the effort that failed, these are real technical approaches targeted at a single entity, malaria, right, or smallpox. Yeah. Um, but there's also, and going all the way back to the League of Nations, there's also been this sort of generalized improving uh, public health for um, nations of the planet in a general sense. So improving um, their hospital capacity, improving um, their, uh, the sanitation, improving uh, freshwater uh, production. Those are more broad-based social uh, components, right, improving people's lives. Um, and so the WHO has always had this tension between some, and the United States has really favored technical approaches of targeting influenza, uh, but there's also been nation states who said, you know, you can talk about surveillance and targeting influenza, but I can't treat anybody anyway. Yeah. So I need to improve these things. These things would be better for this segment of the member states than these sort of technical approaches. Gotcha, gotcha. It doesn't matter if you're tracking a disease, if you don't have fresh water to do any kind of uh, a, a medical situation, then uh, you are kind of in the rut no matter what. Right. And we're seeing that with COVID today because they're they're talking about, you know, frequently washing your hands. Well, there's huge parts of the planet right now who don't have access to fresh water to drink, let alone washing their hands five or six times a day, you know? So. Yeah, yeah. That's a bit of a luxury. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about yeah. that. That makes a lot, a lot of sense. Uh, all right. So then now and and full disclosure at the time that we are we're recording this, this is uh, Friday, May 29th. We don't know. It, it will not air today. It'll, it'll air next week. So uh, uh, we don't know how things will go from now. But literally uh, less than an hour ago, the president of, of the United States announced that uh, the United States would no longer be funding the World Health Organization. But leading up to to this moment now, uh what has or how has the WHO, uh, the WHO's relationship with a pandemic situation like this changed from where it was in the 50s and the 60s, if at all? Uh, yeah, that's a that's a loaded question, but uh, I will wait <laughs> in. So um, how has it changed? Um, it hasn't really. Uh, there was I, I would say in uh, in the 80s, um, there was sort of a breach between. Uh, American technical focused interests and sort of the broader based uh, health improvement uh, or health situation improvement, public health improvement, um, that kind of during the Reagan years, we stopped fulfilling our full allotment of money. And so the United States was in arrears in a lot of ways. And that led to a lot of tensions with the WHO in the 80s, but they were resolved by the United States scaled back some of their their general donations, but expanded their more targeted uh, donations. So um, the United States funded vaccine efforts, right, uh, to a larger percentage. Uh, and so that was a way to, you know, the United States was, all their money wasn't just going into uh, WHO coffers that were then differentiated to different programs. The United States had was given more leeway to target. Um, so that tension you know, has always existed in the technical approaches the United States favors. Um, today, we, we fund a lot of technical programs and we provide, and we always have since the founding of the WHO, the United States has been far and away the largest donator of money, always. 
I, I can't think of a single year. I, I suppose I could probably look over some of the records, but I can't think of a single year when the United States was not head and shoulders above everybody else. Yeah. So our funding of that has always been, but the focus of that has changed. Some of we've, you know, we've done more of this allocation for sort of specific things. There's also been since the turn of the century, uh, a, a rise of really deep-pocketed NGOs uh, like the Ga- Gates Foundation and the Ford Foundation, who are who are donating. Uh, they are in in many ways uh, functioning. I don't want to say functioning. I'm going to say they're approaching in the same technical fashion that the United States has historically. So the Gates Foundation is funding um, uh, Gavi. The Gates Foundation is funding uh, polio eradication. Uh, the Gates Foundation is you know, approaching, uh, trying to develop a malaria vaccine, right? So yeah. these are real technical approaches that the United States has favored. So I'm not really clear uh, on the current administration. Uh, one, the ideas they're thinking about uh, not funding, uh, and two, um, how that's going to play out. Because, you know, some of this discord has been uh, part of the discussion for the last couple of weeks, and the Secretary of State Pompeo said we're going to fund similar organizations. So we don't want to pull the money from polio eradication because uh, we think it's a good idea and we spent a lot of money doing it, but that's run under the umbrella of the WHO. So how they're ta- how they're conceptualizing that, I don't know um, if this is just going to be something that's thrown out at today's press conference, uh, and then how that's going to play out. How I, 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 I'm at a loss right now how that's going to play out. How's that? Is, is part of it because we can't really envision what the, like, like the WHO operating at the scale that they operate without the United States' targeted donations for these programs? Well, um, from what I understand, um, again, as you say, it's you know, hot off the presses, but from yeah. what I understand, the current administration – still wants to fund certain things. Yes. Right. So they think some of these things are really good, but this, this sort of amorphous idea that the WHO is operating in league uh, with China to obscure uh, the origins of the particular COVID, uh, it, it doesn't fit with the, the general actions of the WHO. And I'll say, let me say this, the WHO because of the way it is designed and funded, relies upon the goodwill of nation states to achieve its ends. They don't have a separate pot of money to run programs. They rely on nation states and their public health funding and infrastructure to achieve global public health goals. So that means it's not good policy if you want to achieve a public health goal to, ins- uh, to insult nation states yeah. because they're the ones that are doing it. So uh, one may criticize how far they're willing to withhold uh, critiques and criticism of nation states um, at the time, right? But the sort of larger goal is if you want access and you want to you know, know what's going on in, in nation states, you have to keep those lines of communication open. And if you serve to shut them off, well, then you're not going to achieve your global public health goals. And I can only imagine that all these pressures come to a boiling point when you're dealing with a pandemic as uh, uh, spreadable and lethal as COVID-19. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, man. And, uh, and criticism of China's um, uh, willingness to share information, uh, this, uh, is, this is not new in global public health either, right? So yeah. one of the main critiques in SARS was that the Chinese didn't report it for a very long time until it actually had escaped their national borders. Um, and that was a serious critique that was supposed to be changed uh, in the interim, but we still don't know a lot about how things unfolded with COVID. So perhaps it's wise not to uh, rush to judgment on that. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, we will certainly see, uh, I don't think we have heard the end of this WHO situation. And uh, uh, I think that there's a lot more to peel back on that, but we now know so much more 
about previous pandemics that have come through the United States. And we do because we spoke with George Diener, an associate professor of history at Wichita State University. Guys, please check out his books, Influenza, A Century of Science and Public Health Response, and Global Flu and You, A History of Influenza. George, thank you so much for coming on. This was extraordinarily enlightening. Justin, thanks for having me on. I'm happy to talk anytime. And that's going to wrap it up for us today. I want to give a very special thanks to all of the cop listeners that emailed in. Good having that perspective. Can't be scared of ideas. I want to thank uh, George Diener for uh, coming on and, and educating us about the pandemics of the past. I, I love I love that interview. That interview was good. I like that one. A reminder that you can email into us, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Again, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. And we're going to do a big email segment next Wednesday. I was going to do it this Wednesday. Obviously, that got pushed. And then we had the cop feedback from that episode. So next Wednesday, Wednesday, big mailbag episode. We will uh, take all the best emails and we'll do uh, a big segment on that. A reminder, free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. Five days a week, five stories a day. The best community on the planet. All right? The best community. The best community to talk about politics. It's so fun. It is my favorite part of the morning. Getting those emails in and then putting them back into the next day's newsletter. Go ahead and check it out. Free political newsletter. Dot com. You want to support the show? TakePoliticsSeriously.com. $3 gets you two bonus podcasts per week. Of course, we got to give a shout out to our Titanic $10 tier. Middle-aged Mike, Chad, Dallas Danger, Taylor, your boy, Craig, Zachy Chan, TroubleFilm.com, Nick, Utah, Jimmy, Montana, D. Laser, Captain Bunzo, Frozen Summers, Emily, Wolf, Glenn, 99, Berkeley, Steven, The Jen, and H. Blumkin, Robert E. Oxy, D.L., Andrew, Archie, Brad, Brian, Daily Tech News Show, Darren, Dustin, I Pooped My Pants, Jay Milius, Jonathan Scott, Lindsay Logan, MacBook Pro, Miranda, Nick, Nomadic, Darren, Olin, and Angela, Richard, Thor, and Zach. Again, it's easy. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Head there if you want to be part of this. Till next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying... Some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and I saw one television program that talked about politics, but this is the only show that talks about Also, Google Lady G! Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. (laughs)